Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. These podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. We're here today with um, Dr. Ellis and Dr. Bikin, who are both experts in coronary artery disease and management of coronary disease, to answer questions that were sent in by our, um, our audience on the topic. And we're going to focus on the second part on treatment options. So welcome to both of you. <laughs> and we're going to start up like um, with uh, some questions starting with treatment. And I'm just going to go through some of these questions. The first one is about treatment or innovation. The person says for arteries that are shriveled up and cannot be stented or bypassed. Um, Dr. Ellis, do you want to start and then? It's a little hard to know what to say there, Betsy, because I think you need to see the heart catheterization to know what shriveled up actually means. I, it, I might interpret it, for instance, as just a totally blocked artery, which sometimes can be either opened with a stent or bypass surgery. Um, if patients are totally, uh, can't have either of those options and are refractory to medication, sometimes we use EECP or enhanced external counterpulsation. But um, again, it's a little hard to know what to say without actually looking at the picture. I think a, an artery, just to some physicians, an artery that can't be treated isn't necessarily the same for Dr. Bakim and myself. Do you have anything? Yeah, I agree with Dr. Ellis completely. In fact, we were just discussing a case before, before we went on to this podcast. Um, if uh, um, you look at the cath and uh, you can try and get some cues as to whether that vessel is bigger than it uh, seams on the cath and uh, one thing that I found helpful that we were discussing was getting a CT coronary angiogram because that can give you an idea about the dimension of the vessel, about the calcification of the vessel and whether you have a suitable landing zone. It doesn't have to be a perfect vessel to bypass. We often find just the right piece of real estate to land that bypass on. So yes, I caution that conclusion without careful evaluation. The next question is about somebody that has a 100% blocked LAD. They've had multiple uh, eight stents, brachytherapy, and now the LAD is 100% blocked with collaterals growing and told a graft is not possible. What do you say to a patient like that? Well, I think if they've had that many stents in radiation therapy, that, that artery is probably shot as far as stenting goes. If they really have no symptoms, then probably it's not worth taking a risk to do anything uh, in terms of revascularization. But if they were having symptoms, I would refer the patient to Dr. Bakin. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think if they have no symptoms, there's no need to do anything. But if they do have symptoms, then uh, we will get a, a CT scan to look at the anatomy and suitability of that uh, landing spot. And uh, this patient could be even a candidate for a minimally invasive procedure where we go through a mini left thoracotomy and do a off-pump uh, bypass. It's called the mid-cab or minimally invasive direct coronary artery bypass, uh, but not every patient is a candidate for that. So uh, that is something that we could study and uh, discuss uh, with the patient. But uh, there may be options if the patient's symptomatic. And if there's any question, also a viability study could be done to see if that part of the heart is still alive and would actually benefit from receiving extra blood. Most patients do benefit from revascularization. So um, 
these are my recommendations. We often get questions from patients who've had multiple, multiple, multiple stents. Is there a time when they should maybe get an opinion about like what is the best treatment for a patient? I mean, you two work together a lot when you're discussing patients. How does that work for you in the practice? Yeah, there's not an absolute number. Uh, I think if, if the, the patient is having a recurrence in the same spot, after at least maybe two or even three treatments, then maybe that spot's simply not going to respond to sense, and if they need revascularization, then the surgical option is better. Um, I mean, some, some of our patients might have five or seven stents, and they're all open, and, and you know, that's great. So there's, it's hard to say there's a number, but the more, you, the more stents you put in, I think at some point you have to say, well, this isn't really working, maybe there's another way. Actually, my record of uh, operating on somebody after multiple stents uh, is 52 stents. And uh, I was able to land uh, four bypasses way down towards the apex of the heart. And that patient actually did well. Now it depends who's putting the stent and who's the patient. So if Dr. Ellis is putting those stents, you presented your series of uh, the patency or how long they stay open. And in the newer generation stents, they're amazing in terms of uh, staying open for a long time, up to five years with results very similar to actually, if not better than historic data for vein grafts. So again, the operator and the type of stent and the type of disease in, and, and the patient um, can determine uh, how those stents perform. But generally speaking, if a patient is young and they're not having luck with the stents, it's probably better to consider bypass surgery. Betsy, I think there's another piece to that, and that is the, the stentor needs to be really careful that they don't put stents so far down the coronary arteries, they don't leave any spot for a bypass if the stents reblock. That's a real mistake that we see sometimes. One person asked, what is the best stent to use to prevent restenosis? Well, we have the Ellis stent. Yes, <laughs> I don't have, a, don't have a stent named after me. Um, I, I think the, there's little to choose between the current stents, quite honestly. Uh, the so-called second-generation drug-eluting stents. Um, I think that there, there are several that are very, very good. And quite honestly, we seldom use, for instance, bare metal stents, and we certainly don't use first-generation drug-eluting stents. We look for a while at stents that would totally dissolve, as you may know, and at least to date, they haven't worked out so well. A person asked, they're 71 years old, they had five bypasses in 2003, and then in 2017, they had another heart attack. They said the back artery, the artery in the back of their heart was blocked but was not treated. They're taking Rampril and Metoprolol. Is there any suggestions for that? They don't really mention symptoms, I don't think. If the patient's symptomatic, they certainly should have an updated cath. Oftentimes blocked arteries, whether they're totally blocked or not totally blocked, can be opened with stents. And under some circumstances, they might even be a good candidate for bypass surgery. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think uh, symptoms in terms of Having chest pain, angina, or shortness of breath um, should warrant further investigation. And um, if the vessel is small and inconsequential, maybe medical management, but if the vessel is big enough, then Dr. Ellis, um, interventional cardiologist, will be able to possibly stent that vessel and improve the symptoms. If that vessel uh, supplies a huge territory of the heart and um, um, it's difficult to stent or impossible to stent, then consideration for coronary artery bypass um, is certainly on the table. Now, if the mammary artery or the internal thoracic uh, artery is open, uh, we usually 
think twice before reoperating, especially if the LAD, the most important vessel, is a big one that wraps around the heart because studies from this institution showed that surgery can improve symptoms but may not improve survival because the survival is determined by that vessel bypass with the uh, LETA to LAD or the LIMA to LAD, the mammary to the LAD. So uh, in summary, you got to look at the anatomy, you got to look at the symptoms and uh, look at the risk-benefit ratio. Somebody asked about when do they decide to do stents and when to do bypass surgery. This patient has multivessel coronary disease with blockages in the LAD circumflex and RCA. Well, there are a number of things that, that should be considered. First of all, I think it should be a joint decision between the surgeon, the interventionalist, and the patient because there are a number of things to look into. But sort of the main things that we look at are how many blockages are there, where are they located, are they stendable, and particularly if the patient has diabetes, then in general surgery is preferred. I, I agree with Dr. Ellis. I think in diabetics the, and in general, the higher the atherosclerotic burden, meaning the um, burden of disease and the distribution of the disease, um, the more likely surgery becomes the preferred option. But again, it's all risk-benefit ratio and discussion with the heart team to make the best possible uh, choice of therapy. Uh, a patient's brother was a smoker. He has COPD. He was told he needs coronary bypass surgery but would be high risk. Disease in two main vessels. He takes five nitro a day. What should he do? Well, it depends how bad the COPD. 20% um, of our patients have a documented history of COPD. Um, it depends are they on any medications such as inhalers, are they on nebulizers, are they on steroids, uh, what's their performance status, can they go up one flight of stairs without being short of breath. Um, these are the kind of questions we look at, we look at the pulmonary function tests um, and we look at the patient um, and we get a CT scan to look at the lung parenchyma, meaning the, uh, the, the, the lung tissue, how much destruction there is. But generally speaking, it's not an absolute contraindication for bypass, um, but we have to assess the severity and the performance of the patient before we um, determine the risk and whether that risk is worth taking. Ah, stopping smoking is important. It's critical, in fact. Well, you mentioned a minimally invasive bypass approach. A person is having, they need to have on, uh, be on bypass uh, or need a bypass, and they want to know if they need to be on the bypass machine and if there are minimally invasive options for them. The debate about whether using or not using the heart-lung machine is the best way to go. Um, this is controversy that is ongoing. There's no evidence that doing the procedure without the heart-lung machine is better than with the heart-lung machine. Our preference, and the general pre preference actually, at this point in time is using the bypass machine. It's, it's very safe, it allows a bloodless field, it's still hot, it allows for perfect and complete revascularization of the heart. Now, there are situations where doing the procedure without the heart-lung machine uh, makes sense. For example, uh, somebody with a bad aorta that you don't want to manipulate, um, somebody with liver disease, um, a patient who needs one or two bypasses in very um, accessible and sizable vessels. Um, those are situations where it's, it makes sense to do the off-pump procedure. Um, now, minimally invasive procedures 
generally entail going through the site and they can be done um, either hands-on uh, or with robotic assistance. And it's typically offered for patients with an LAD lesion, which is left anterior descending artery, the artery that supplies the front of the heart, the most important uh, branch. And um, it, it depends on the anatomy again. If somebody's super obese, if uh, there's chest wall deformity, if the vessel is too deep or too small, they may not be candidate for minimally invasive options. Experimentally, uh, or in certain centers, uh, more bypasses are done in addition to the LED through a small incision. But frankly, we don't have the numbers or the data to support their safety or efficacy or long-term durability. This gentleman's uh, dad is diabetic. He's been diabetic since 15, had multiple surgeries and procedures on his legs to improve his feet circulation. Now he has bad blockage in his heart. He has chest pain. His doctors feel he cannot have heart surgery because there are no grafts for him. Are there other options? So it seems to me like they've used the veins in the legs. Um, so in this patient, uh, the conduit limitation makes the procedure interesting um, and, and certainly risky uh, in the sense that, you know, you need to have enough conduits to do enough bypasses uh, to achieve complete revascularization if possible. So what we would do is that we will do a vein map, we'll do an ultrasound of the legs to look and make sure that we have absolutely nothing to go for, because sometimes they use the greater saphenous, but they don't use the lesser saphenous, which is the back of the leg. Um, that is something that we could harvest. We could look at the radial arteries in both arms. Hopefully the cardiologist would have cathed them through the leg, because if they cath them through the arm, we have to wait at least three months after that cath to be able to use that arm vessel. And so we look at both arms, and then um, we use both arteries from inside the chest. Um, these are usually the, the conduits that we use. Um, rarely we go into the abdomen and take uh, what's called the gastroepiploic artery, which is the artery that supplies the stomach. Um, and finally, as a desperate measure, which I don't recommend, is we use a cryopreserved vein uh, which is vain from another human being that has been frozen preserved. So the answer to the question is we will look hard to find the conduits and sometimes if they're not perfect we'll cut them, splice them, join them together or take them off each other, what's called the composite graft, to make it work. And if we absolutely can't find the conduits then we'll send them to Dr. Ellis to try and stem them. But it's, I think it's fair to say that for somebody that hasn't had prior bypass surgery, it's very unusual not to have conduits if all you need is an LED. If it's just a single vessel, it's, I've certainly never run by this scenario. I think uh, you'll always find one to use. They haven't had previous heart surgery, and uh, unless they've had a chest deformity or an accident or a previous surgery, I, I don't see why we can't find a vessel to bypass. Do you ever um, stent an op to open up a blocked bypass graft? That's an area of some controversy. The short answer is yes, but there is some risk of dislodging the plaque as you open it up and having the plaque embolize into the heart and causing a heart attack. So it's, it's technically feasible, but probably only should be done under somewhat rare circumstances where there aren't any other good options and the patient's quite symptomatic. A patient says that they have a stent in their RCA that's 10 years old and now blocked and they have no angina 
they think they have plenty of collateral flow, what options are there to reopen the stent, bypass, and or build more collateral? So in the absence of symptoms, it's probably not worth taking the risk of trying to do something with that. Uh, the success rate of opening up total blocked stents with another stent is, at many institutions is quite high, although it varies a lot around the country. And again, the patient might be a candidate for surgery, but I would say generally in the absence of symptoms, probably should just be treated with medicines. What do you do for somebody that has chest pain and an anomalous coronary artery recently diagnosed? Depends on the anomaly is the answer. Some of them are best managed with surgery, some best with stenting. Uh, generally, there is a treatment option, but it depends on the anomaly. Yeah, I mean, the, if they're symptomatic, um, um, I mean, some patients are at increased risk for sudden death uh, because of those anomalies. Uh, what we usually do is a CT coronary angiogram uh, to really delineate the anatomy, and then there are proven and standard um, surgical techniques to correct um, this problem. So um, it's certainly worth um, treating. So the main concern is, the, is an anomaly that runs between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. It can get squeezed. So in that circumstance, we often treat even in the absence of symptoms because of the risk of sudden death. An anomaly that doesn't run between those vessels is typically um, not any more risky than, than an artery that in, its, in its more usual location. If somebody had um, stents and they closed and then they had cabbage surgery six months ago, what's the chance they will close up to? Sometimes stents do not work well for um, certain patients. Um, maybe the runoff of the vessel is not that good. Um, maybe um, uh, the bypass vessels might be more durable. Um, certainly if it's an arterial graft that's used, that's good quality. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, um, I would just uh, see how things go and if they develop symptoms, they can be reinvestigated. But there's no correlation that if the stents went down quickly, then the bypasses will go, get, will, will go down quickly. Unless that target vessel is small and heavily diseased and no matter what we do, um, is not helping. So we talked briefly, or you alluded to our studies about the durability of stents, and I'll, I'll make the point that the average stent that we put in this institution last, last about 12 years. What is the risk of, of closure? We often say patients are cured after surgery, and I'm, I'm not trying to, to belittle surgery at all, but what, is, what do you tell patients about the risk of the, of the bypasses closing? Well, the one that we know stays open for a long time, and I usually say if you leave the OR with an open uh, mammary or internal thoracic artery to LAD, then uh, they should stay open for life. And that's generally held true because the patency at 20 years is about 90%. Um, and, and maybe some of those 10% that, that went down, many went down early on, maybe related technical issues. Now, the vein grafts are interesting. Why? For two reasons. One, they get affected by atherosclerosis unlike the internal mammary or internal thoracic artery, which is immune to, usually immune to atherosclerosis. But also, the veins can go to suboptimal targets. I mean, oftentimes, you come out of the OR, you say, oh, I did four or five bypasses. Two of them go to really marginal vessels, but, you know, they're sizable enough, you thought that they could benefit from vein graft. And that vein graft does, does a good job because um, they do stay open. But on average, um, 
at least historically, we don't really have up-to-date data. Uh, we know that half of them are going to be down by 10 years. Now, now with optimal medical management and statin therapy, many believe that we're seeing less and less vein disease. In other words, if you put a good quality vein on a good quality target vessel and you stick to good medical regimen, then that vein might stay open longer than we thought they did, meaning um, that they might stay open uh, beyond uh, five to 10 years. Um, we can discuss more about the different type of conduits, uh, radials, for example, from the arm. Um, there's recent data that show that they stay open longer than veins. Um, and um, some people advocate using um, arm block vein and no touch technique, meaning that you go back to the old days with a big incision and strip the vein with everything surrounding it. And some um, have, have advocated doing that and achieving patency rates similar to arteries. Uh, but that's probably beyond the scope of our discussions. Um, I think to summarize, the gold standard is the internal mammary artery to the LED that stays open for a long time. But veins, it depends on the patient, the target vessel, and um, uh, the, the vein itself, the quality of the vein. There's quite a few questions about post-procedure. How to stay um, healthy longest, how to prevent future disease. Maybe you both can talk about what your um, typical medical regimen and advice is for patients after stent and then bypass surgery. We sort of touched upon this the first session, but it's, it's certainly worth repeating. So um, this would generally involve a referral for cardiac rehabilitation, where they'll focus on diet and exercise, and diet and exercise are very, very important. You need to manage your risk factors as best you can. That means getting the blood pressure down, making sure you're not a diabetic, or if, if you are a diabetic, treating it, um, not smoking, getting your cholesterol down. Uh, all those things are very important. In terms of the medications, the patients are typically on aspirin and Plavix or aspirin and clopidogrel for a period of time after stenting. That, that period depends on the, the patient's clinical presentation. It could be as short as a month or as long as forever. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of uh, nuances in between. I think uh, recovery after heart surgery is, is kind of similar overlaps in terms of the importance of medical management and secondary prevention because you want to have those grafts stay open for a long time. So um, controlling your lipids, your glucose, your blood pressure all contributes to a durability of your bypass procedure. In terms of recovery, you know, when you break an arm, you put it in a cast for um, uh, eight weeks for the bone uh, to heal completely. When we split the bone in the middle, uh, we put it back together with wire, and we've used the wire for many, many, many decades, and they're very um, um, effective in terms of putting the sternum together and allowing it to heal. Uh, but we don't put you in a cast like that for eight weeks. We ask that you be careful for eight weeks, meaning to hug yourself when you cough or hug a pillow and avoid strenuous activity or heavy lifting. Um, but my father had heart surgery and he went back to desk work within two to three weeks. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, you'll be out of bed the next day and you'll be able to uh, do the activities of daily living, um, but uh, no strenuous activity, typically for eight weeks. After you're treated and you haven't had a heart attack, um, but you've been treated for um, your coronary disease, are you considered to have heart disease for the rest of your life? <laughs>
Yes. <laughs> so those things that you're suggesting is not just for recovery, it's really a lifelong. It's a chronic illness, it needs to be managed with an eye for the long term and not just the short term. No, I agree. Just uh, take care of yourself and uh, the better you take care of yourself, the better the long term outlook. Thank you both for being here today and answering a lot of questions. I know people will be very happy to listen to your, um, to your information. Thank you. Great. It's our pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash love your heart podcast.